All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Pastor Bill uh, and myself, through the month of December, we were covering um, different texts, maybe more related to a Christmas theme. And then last week, Pastor Bill did a uh, New Year's message. So we've not been in the book of Mark for a little while now. But if you'll remember the last message that Pastor Bill taught, he taught the first six verses of chapter 3, and it was confronting man-made religion. And Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, and the religious establishment of that day, they were uh, furious about this. Uh, And so after it was all said and done, at this point they are officially conspiring to destroy Jesus. Mark is a very fast-paced gospel compared to the others. We're in chapter 3 and already the the religious authorities are looking to kill Jesus. Everything happens uh, a lot more quickly in this gospel. And so that's kind of what, what took place last time we were in Mark. And from there, Jesus will go out. He will continue on into His... Uh, teaching ministry, his healing ministry, uh, and then from that point he's going to call the twelve apostles, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at the men that Jesus chooses. We're going to glean from that, maybe take away some some lessons as we consider the characters of these men, uh, along with some other things. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to read the text. And then uh, we'll go back and start working our way through verse by verse. Father, we love You and we thank You uh, that You are here. We thank You that You loved us first. You called us out of the world. You called us into Your marvelous light. And now it's our greatest joy to walk with You. You have given us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You have given us a desire for You and for Your will to be done in our lives. And we want to be pleasing, God, to You. And we've come here today to worship You and to meet with You corporately as a family of believers. Lord, we all know that You've called us to this place. You've called us into this body. We love You. We love each other. And we are grateful for what Your Spirit is doing here in our midst. So I ask even now at this time as we open up Your Word and we begin to consider Your truth, make it real, Father. Your Word is living. It's powerful. It's sharp. It cuts. And Lord, we need You to work on us. So please reveal Yourself to us in a greater way. Um, To know You is to love You. And we want to be uh, pleasing. As I said, we want to be like You. And so I pray that um, You would open the eyes of our understanding, open the eyes of our heart. Let it not be my words so much as Your words and Your Spirit and Your power going forth in this service and that we would uh, encounter You in a greater way. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, chapter 3, verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed Him from Judea, Judea, excuse me, and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan. And those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things He was doing, came to Him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and carried, uh, excuse me, and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. 
but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Verse 13, And he went up on a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Alright, so verses 7 and 8 are basically just an explanation of where Jesus is at at this time. Uh, he has gone to the sea, this most likely the Sea of Galilee, he spends a lot of his time in uh, the northern part of Israel, in, in uh, Galilee. And it says that there are there's a multitude that gathered, and they came from... Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, this is all over Israel. From north to south, east to west, people have come from hundreds of miles to see Jesus because they were aware of what He was doing, what He was saying, what was happening with Him, and they wanted to come, and the majority of the people here were desperate to touch Jesus. They, they uh, had some sort of sickness, they had some sort of ailment, they were desperate, and they were just trying to get to Jesus. So in verses 9 and 10, it says that He told His disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for Him because of the multitude, lest they should crush Him. For He healed so many that as many had afflictions pressed about Him to touch Him. I've thought about this before, to really stop and consider what this must have looked like. There was a reason why Jesus so often when He would heal somebody, He would tell them, don't tell people. Because it got to the point where he couldn't even function anymore. It was widespread chaos at times. And there were thousands of people pressing in on him to the point where it said that he was afraid of being crushed. Crushed to death. Imagine that. And these people are desperate. Not only you know you have thousands of people pressing in on you, but they're, they're sick. Um, I heard one pastor say there's probably lepers missing fingers and they're doing their best to get a hold of you. And... I mean, it's, it's a wild crowd and people are desperate. And I've thought about even uh, with the youth group, we went through Mark. I thought what would be a cool maybe demonstration of what this would be like uh, on a much smaller scale would to, say, have one kid try to make his way across the courtyard in the back and have the whole youth group come after him. And they're trying to press in on every side and stop him from getting from point A to point B. And I thought in a small way that might kind of give you some idea of what it was like for Jesus just to try to function day in and day out in His ministry. And that's what it was like. So He asked His disciples to have a boat ready so that He could escape if need be, if it got to the point where He was literally going to be crushed by the crowd. And then verse 11, it says, And the unclean spirits, when they saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God, but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. This is kind of a repeat of something that I covered in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. There was a guy in the synagogue. He was demon-possessed, and he stood up. He began to cry out. And uh, same thing, um, Jesus healed the guy, but he, he would not let him speak. And what it boils down to is Jesus did not need, Jesus did not want demonic endorsement. 
The demons knew who he was and they were uh, very afraid of him, but he didn't need their endorsement. Okay, And a lot of times Jesus even went to lengths to kind of keep that concealed uh, at times. And uh, even in this chapter that we're in right now, in chapter 3 of Mark, the religious leaders will accuse Jesus of doing what He's doing in the power of Satan, in the power of demons. I believe that's the next text that will be covered. Um, So Jesus didn't want the demons crying out, saying who He was, so He put a stop to that. Verse 13, And He went up on the mountain, and He called... He called those to Himself that He wanted. Alright, so now there's a shift in the text and Jesus is getting ready to call the twelve apostles. I like the wording in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read that to you. It's the parallel account. It gives us just a little bit more detail here. So in Luke chapter 6 verse 12, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that He went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. From them he chose twelve, whom he called apostles. So first off, Jesus spends all night long in prayer. All night praying to God uh, for the disciples, the disciples that he would be choosing. That's amazing to me. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But if Jesus had to spend all night in prayer, I mean, how much more do we need to be in prayer. And to think that He prayed all night, that's, that's challenging, that's, uh, that's convicting. I mean, it, it's all that. And that's what Jesus did before He chose His apostles. Now, Jesus had many disciples already at this point. You might not catch that, but He actually had hundreds of people following Him. At one point, He sends out 70 groups of two. Alright, so there were a lot of disciples. I don't know how many of them were legitimate. They were following Him for one one reason or another. But at this point here, Jesus selects from these hundreds twelve men that are basically going to spend the next three years with Him. They're going to live together. They're going to serve together. Jesus is going to disciple them very intensely. And these are not going to be normal disciples. These are going to be apostles. And we'll talk about that. But just know there is a distinction These guys are disciples of Jesus, much like we're all disciples of Jesus, but they were apostles. So, verse 14 and 15 in Mark, I'll read that and we'll talk a little bit more about the apostleship deal. So, verse 14, Then He appointed twelve that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. So, as I said, at this point, Jesus has appointed twelve apostles. And we believe that the office of the apostles, it's closed. There are no modern day apostles in this sense. The word apostle does get used, and in certain contexts it is, I think, um, permissible because it simply means sent. It means sent ones. Okay, so there is a sender, that would be the Lord, and then there are those who He has commissioned and He has sent out as His agents. So, in a sense, we're all apostles with a little a. We all have been sent. We are ambassadors of Christ. But here are twelve apostles. They hold the office. Uh, to them has been given a very special power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, to do um, spectacular things. And they were called to be with Jesus, 
to preach, to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. So I want to talk just for a few minutes about um, apostleship and, and the power that they had and the kind of power that is available to Christians now and the distinction between the two and why that's important. First off, let me just say this. I believe that the, the purpose for the power that the apostles were operating in and the purpose for the miracles that Jesus did was to validate the message and to validate the messenger, to validate that Christ is in fact the King. He's the Son of God. If He says He's the Son of God and then He raises somebody from the dead, you have reason to believe that He's, he's telling you the truth, right? And believe it or not, throughout the Bible, the history of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, there's not a lot of miracles happening. You might think that it's miracles left and right from beginning to end, but there are three major eras throughout the Bible where you see miracles happening steadily. One, Moses and Joshua. All right, there's the miracles of, of Moses that we're also very familiar with. And Joshua, you remember he prays that the sun would stand still and it did so that they could continue on in the battle. Then you had Elijah and Elisha, all the miracles that were taking place there. And then fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles. What is significant about that? Well, Moses and Joshua represent the law. Elijah and Elisha represent the prophets. And then Jesus and the apostles represent the New Covenant, the New Testament. So I, I would say that uh, when we come into this new era and the Word of God is going forth and it's being recorded for us, miracles are happening, supernatural things are happening to validate the message, to prove that it is indeed God who is doing this great work and saying these things. So I would say that it's, it's not something that is normative for all of the church. And the reason I tell you this is because there are a lot of Christians in our time, other denominations, which I'll talk a little, little bit about, who would, uh, would really distort this, they would abuse this, and it's false, they're false teachers. And as a pastor, one of my greatest obligations is to warn among other things, we are shepherds who are sent to warn the flock against heresy and false teaching of the day. And some of it has certainly crept into the church. Now let me say this. I absolutely believe in miracles. None of us in here would say that we don't. God is in the business of doing miracles. And God can use a person to do a miracle. He can heal somebody through a person, absolutely. So I'm not saying that miracles have ceased and that miracles aren't happening, and that God isn't in the business of it, but I don't believe that there are people who hold the office of apostle or hold the office of a healer, and they're walking around healing the way so many claim to do, uh, and many that we're, we're very well aware of that are obviously uh, wolves, unfortunately. So I would like to just draw a distinction here. It says that Jesus gave them authority. He gave them authority when He sent them out. And the word there is exousia in the Greek. It says power in the text. He gave them power to heal sickness and to cast out demons, but the word is literally authority and it's exousia. Now there is a power that's made available to all Christians that, that is normative for the church that we all should be walking in. And typically that word in the Greek is 
dunamis. And I'm sure you've probably heard pastors say that quite a bit. It's the word from which we get dynamite. So it's, it's explosive power, it's dynamic power, and there is a power that is available to all of us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? He's not asking the question. He's saying Paul's prayer is that we would understand what is the exceeding greatness of pow- the power toward us who believe. That's a working excuse me, according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. So what Paul is saying in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 is that he would have us realize that we are walking in the same power that rose Christ from the grave. You understand that? That kind of power has been made available to us in the sense that We were raised from death into life. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we have been made alive by the same power that rose Christ from the grave. That's amazing. Okay, so there is that power. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So as Christians, we do have this power that is made available to us through the Spirit because of the cross that we would walk in obedience before the Lord and that we would live the victorious Christian life. But it's not the, not the same thing I would submit to you as what the apostles were doing here and what so many people would say that we should be walking in. And I'll just give you an example. Two major denominations out there, or whatever you would call it right now, the Word of Faith movement, the Word of Faith, and the New Apostolic Reformation. I don't have time to go into all of this and what they teach, I would encourage you to examine it for yourself. The Word of Faith movement has been around a little longer. A lot of the prosperity guys that, that we might be uh, so familiar with, um, this would be the movement that they come out of. Very closely linked to the health and wealth prosperity. But essentially what they do is they bring Christ down and they elevate us and say that we have everything that Christ had available to us and we can do all the things that Christ Himself did because we're in fact gods. And they would say that. They would say that we're, we're gods, uh, we were created in the image of God, and we have all of that same power and authority available to us and it just gets weirder and weirder from there. And that's false. We are not gods. Okay. There is one God, the God, and we are His, His servants. We are His children. The New Apostolic Reformation, uh, they, they really do overlap in a lot of ways. And they, they, one of their clear teachings is that there are modern day apostles. And, that, um, and one of the issues with that is, is that we believe that this is the Word of God. This is the authority upon which we stand. But to say that there are modern apostles means that there is new revelation. There's new authority. And we don't just need the Bible, but what they have to say, new revelation, new authority, and that's so very dangerous. And you understand why. Alright, so while I was hearing this text, I wanted to just draw your attention to that. Realize those things are out there and they're creeping into the church. They're creeping in. Not this church. I really don't feel like this is even something that I necessarily need to address with anybody in here but it's coming, it's happening, it's growing, it's exploding, and it's creeping into the church at large, these, these ideas and these, uh, these, this kind of thinking. And 
There is power, but I'll tell you the kind of power that has been made available to us. First off, we've been given new life. That is one of the greatest miracles that you will ever hear or see. Two, we've been given the power to die to ourself. I'm not in bondage anymore to, to the old man. I'm alive and I have been called to die to self and to live for God and to do His will, His will in my life, to die to self. We've been given the power to love our enemies. Who can do that? Who can do that apart from the power of God, the power of Christ? We've been given the, the, pow, the power to discern the leading of God. We can sense God's presence in our life, that still small voice as He speaks to us through His Word and He leads us. We're alive and we are awakened to the voice of God. We have that power. We have the power to overcome sin and to resist the devil. That's the kind of power that's been made available to us. And that is what the believer ought to rejoice over and walk in. And we need not get that twisted and don't succumb to uh, so much of what is falsely being sent out uh, as Christian doctrine in that area. All right. So now we have a little bit of a shift here. We're going to start talking about the disciples that Jesus has called. And I thought it would be cool just to kind of one by one talk about these guys, what we know about them from the Scriptures. And um, I would even like to, what we, what we know or we think we know about how they died. What, what was their end? I think there's a lot that we can learn from this. There's a lot of implication for our own life. So first off, we saw Jesus. He was healing. He was walking in authority. He's preaching. He's casting out demons. Now he calls his apostles to himself, the twelve apostles. He delegates this authority to them so that they now have the ability to do the same for the propagation of the gospel message, the kingdom of God. And these are the men that God has chosen to do this. And I believe that as we look at this, there's a lot that we can learn about how God thinks and how God operates. And I think we're going to see a lot of similarities between these guys and ourselves. And I hope that we'll be encouraged. I hope that we will be challenged. And as I, I'll just warn you now, as I talk a little bit about um, their end, it can be kind of gruesome. I did a lot of research here. Um, I looked at different books, uh, different commentaries, listened to different pastors, went online. But ultimately, um, a, lot of, a lot of this comes from um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You may have heard of that. A lot of this is tradition. Whatever happened to the disciples, it was handed down and then recorded at some point in time. I can't present it to you like this is gospel truth inspired from the Bible, but um, it's interesting, it's fascinating nonetheless. It's been commonly accepted uh, by the church throughout the years, and I think it's interesting to consider whatever happened to these great men that God called uh, as they were faithful to the very end. So first off, in verse 16, we have Simon. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. What do we know about Peter? First off, he really kind of rose up amongst the rest as the leader of the group. Every time, there's four different times that you'll find the names of the disciples. Peter is at the front of the list. He's at the top. Peter was a fisherman. He's kind of a man's man. Peter was spontaneous at times to a fault. And frankly, he could be quite arrogant at times. You know, he... He would go so far as to say, all the other disciples, they might leave you, they might forsake you, I would never do that. In fact, I would die for you. That was his attitude. And um, 
we know that he did deny Christ the night that Jesus was betrayed. He, like the rest of the disciples, um, they, they took off. But you know what? He really loved Jesus. And he repented. And Jesus restored him. And he went on to be used in amazing ways, which we have so much of it recorded in Acts. And obviously we have First Peter and Second um, Peter. He was uh, known as the Apostle of Hope. He was the Apostle to the Jews. And tradition has it that he was crucified in Rome, upside down, after having first watched his wife be crucified. Uh, they say he didn't feel that he um, was worthy to be crucified the same way that his Lord was. So at his request, he was uh, crucified upside down. Verse 17, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges and, and he translates that for us, the sons of thunder. So these are John and James are the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, their father, he was a, a successful fisherman. He had a business and they were involved in that. They left all that. They dropped their nets. They followed Jesus. They're also called the sons of thunder. They, they were an interesting couple of guys. And at one point they encouraged Jesus because the Samaritans rejected Christ. He, they encouraged Jesus to call down fire from heaven and to incinerate the village. And Jesus was like, look, you don't know what spirit you're of. And so I think I would say that's probably why Jesus gave them that name, Sons of Thunder. James is the first martyr uh, that, that we see of the disciples. In Acts chapter 12, he was beheaded in Jerusalem um, under the, uh, the command of, of Herod. John, the apostle, he was the youngest. There's been, kind of, I think, different guesstimations at how old he was, but I think commonly they think he may have been 16 or 17 years old at the point that he walked with Jesus. He's known as the one whom Jesus loved. John is persecuted heavily throughout his life, but he never actually dies a martyr's death. We believe that he died uh, of natural causes as an old man somewhere around the age of 100 in Ephesus. He was the only one that didn't die. He was the only one that was at the cross. I don't know that there's any significance there, but it's interesting to consider. Of the twelve, he was the only one that actually stayed with Jesus all the way to the point of the cross. Verse 18, we have Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite. So first off, Andrew. This is the brother of Peter. He was a disciple of John. Um, he's the one, remember when Jesus fed the multitude, the five loaves and two fish, he was the one that came forward and said, hey, there's a lad here that has five loaves and two fish that we can use. Um, there's just a few little instances where we see him pop up. That's one of them. Uh, tradition has it that he was tortured, scourged, and tied to an X. Right? So it would be kind of like a cross except in an X shape, buried in the, the two sides buried in the ground. And um, he was... Scourged, so he probably would have, I guess, bled to death over a very slow period of time as he was tied to this X. And there's actually something called the, the St. Andrew's Cross, and that's what that is. Um, he died in the Grecian peninsula of Petros. What I want you to notice, these guys were faithful. They went out, they served the Lord, they were witnesses just like Jesus said they would be, and they went out to, really, they scattered. You know, the group scattered. They went in all different directions by themselves and they served the Lord faithfully and they served to the death. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but just to keep working through this list. And part of this, guys, 
Let's, you know, I just want us to know who these disciples are. As you read through the Gospels, it's good for you to know. When you hear the list, when you see the guys, it sticks out in your mind. Okay, I know who that guy is and who that guy is and kind of what, how he stands out and why and even what the tradition says about what happened to them in the end. It's, it's good to know these things, especially as you're reading through the Gospels. Alright, next we have Philip. Philip is the one, if you'll remember, that led Nathaniel to Jesus. He ran to Nathaniel's house and said, We found the Messiah, the Christ. And you'll remember Nathaniel. What did Nathaniel say? Does anybody remember? He said, We found him in Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, Anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, you're tracking with me. All right. So that's Philip. Jesus tested Philip about the bread. When he fed the 5,000, Jesus came to Philip and said, what, what, sh- what should we do? You know, we need to feed these guys. And Philip was like, you know, how in the world are we going to feed these guys? 200 denarii of, uh, is not enough to buy bread for all these guys. So that's Philip. He's also the one that said to Jesus in John chapter 14, he said, you know what, just show us the Father and, and that's enough. We'll be happy with that. And you'll remember Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's Philip. Um, it's said, sometimes this gets a little confusing, and I'm not entirely sure how this could even work, but he was crucified and stoned. So it's, it's, uh, from what I make of that is he was hanging on a cross, and then from that point they stoned him to death. And as I think about this kind of stuff, I think that's raw hatred. Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus warned them in the Gospels that this is what it was going to be like for them. People are going to kill you and they're going to think that they're doing God a justice. Or they're, they're, they're doing something great for God. And, um, and it, it happened. And you look at the raw hatred with which the disciples were hated and how they were treated as they went out and were faithful to preach. Philip died in Hierapolis. Next we have Bartholomew. Bartholomew is in the list in Mark, but that's actually Nathaniel, who we just spoke of, the guy that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's also the one where when he approached Jesus, Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And he fell down and said, you know, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, I've told you that I saw you under the fig tree and now you believe. I mean, you're going to see greater things than this. That was Nathaniel. Tradition has it, that in Armenia, which is where he went out to preach the gospel, basically he was skinned with whips. They had the ability to flay somebody with whips to the point where your skin is gone, and then he was crucified. So um, some accounts said that he was just tied to the, to the cross so that he would just you know, hang there skinless and it would prolong uh, his death. Uh, I'm not sure. The next one is Matthew. Matthew, we all know Matthew, the tax collector, right? He was one of the authors of the gospel. Matthew was a tax collector, okay? This is significant, and I'll, I'll explain that why here in a few minutes, why that's significant. But just know, know this, you know, Rome was the power that occupied at that time. And one of the reasons that they were so successful when they would come in and conquer a land, they would let the people continue on in their, their religion, their, their rules, and, and their systems of belief. Um, they had to pay tribute to Rome and they had to pay tax and they had to acknowledge Caesar as God. And that was a problem for the Christians. But nonetheless, tax collectors would be set up in different areas and they would collect tax from the people and then give it to Rome. Well, Matthew was a a Jew and so he was working for the man, if you will. So he was considered a traitor by his people. 
and he was collecting tax from the people and giving it to Rome, but it was almost like a franchise. You could purchase certain areas over which you would exercise this authority, and you had to give so much to Rome, but if you could get extra, you could keep that. It was yours. So there were crooks on top of the fact that they were traitors. So they were hated by people more than even the Romans were. And that was Matthew. But we know his story. He, he converted. He became a follower of Christ. And according to Fox's book of Martyrs, again, this is a crazy one, he was crucified to the ground. Okay, They laid him on something, nailed him to the ground, and then beheaded him. Uh, and that's our beloved Matthew. And this happened in Ethiopia. He was all the way in Ethiopia preaching the Gospel. And then we have Thomas. Thomas the Doubter, right? We all know this guy. Um, he shows up in, in the Gospels in different places, but I think what he's most famous for is when Jesus, uh, he, he was resurrected and the disciples gathered in the upper room and all, they had all, all seen Jesus. Judas is gone at this point. So the other ten, they had seen Jesus, but Thomas had not. And so they're telling him they're excited. He doesn't believe. And he's like, unless I see for myself, unless I put my hands in his hands and in his side, I won't believe. And then Jesus appeared there out of nowhere. And he was like, here I am. You know, do you want to touch? you want to see? And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he believed. And Jesus said to him, you know, you've seen and you believe, but how much more blessed are they who having never seen, believe. And that's me, that's you. Alright, that was Thomas. Thomas the doubter went on to be a mighty man of God, a mighty preacher of the faith, a missionary to India. He made it to India where he was tortured by, by the priest there and it is said that he was thrown in an oven and speared. I don't know how that works. Um, I saw like a depiction of, of uh, a, an illustration of that in, in the book. And uh, they basically threw him in there and it looked like they just started throwing spears into the, the fire as he was in it. Alright, the next two guys we don't know very much about. The next three. Um, we see their names in the Gospels, but we don't see much other than that. James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes known as James the Less. It is said that he was thrown from the temple mount. He was thrown from the top of the temple. Thaddeus sometimes known as Labius, and at one point he's known as Judas, not Iscariot. Okay, so his name was Judas, but a lot of these guys, they didn't want to be associated with that name anymore. So they would be, this guy was actually Judas, not Iscariot. They went out of their way to, to make that clarification. Um, said that he died in Armenia. He was shot to death with arrows. Simon the Canaanian. I like this guy. We don't know a lot about him. But the word Canaanian, it, uh, it says Canaanite, it means Canaanian, and that does not mean that he's from Canaan. Uh, it means that he was a zealot. And we're really familiar with certain groups that existed during the New Testament time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, all these, these different groups. But one of them is the zealots. And these guys were basically, they were homegrown terrorists. They hated Rome and it was their objective to rise up and overthrow Rome through guerrilla warfare tactics. And so um, if they were caught by Rome, I mean, they would be speedily executed. Uh, they were sometimes known as dagger men. They were highly skilled. Um, they could make their way through a crowd, find a Roman soldier, stick a dagger right in between his, uh, his armor here in the back, and then walk away and never even saw the guy. 
And this was Simon the Zealot. And this guy was a disciple. And what's even more amazing to me is that Matthew was a disciple. Simon would have hated Matthew worse than he hated Rome. And it's amazing to me that you have two guys like this in the group of the apostles. Tradition says that Simon the Zealot was sawn in half uh, in what would be modern-day Iran. That was his end. And then lastly, verse 19, we have Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. That was uh, better rendered, they went home. So odds are they went back to Capernaum. Um, but we have Judas at the very end of the list. What we know of him, we know a lot, but we know that he betrayed Christ and he went out and he hung himself. That was Judas's and the difference between Peter. Peter repented and was restored. Judas went out in his guilt and just ended his life. He hung himself and that was his end. So in closing, I'm going to wrap up at this point. Um, I just want to take away a few considerations. What do we see with, with the disciples? What do we see that's significant here in this group? And in some ways, guys, I, I think that this is a picture of what the church ought to look like and, and does look like in so many respects. One, great diversity. These guys were so very different in so many different ways. Even like I just said, you had the tax collector and the zealot, yet these brothers obviously were repentant, repented, but they, they no doubt loved each other and they lived with each other. They loved Jesus and there was a diversity and, and such should be the case in the church. We're very diverse. Most of us in here would not be hanging out outside of here or we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the common thing that draws us together and that is Jesus. That's what makes us brothers and sisters. That's why we are connected. Which leads me to the second point, commonality. Though they were so very different and diverse, they had something very special in common. There was a commonality and that is Christ. Same, as I just said. We are so very different. We come from different backgrounds, yet we have this common thread and it's our Lord Jesus. And it's what causes us to come together and to love each other and to worship our Father in Heaven. There is that commonality that exists. Third, I would say simplicity. The simplicity of the disciples. Uh, these were not highly educated men, highly trained men, learned men. They were not prestigious men. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many are wise according to the flesh. Not many are mighty, not many are noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring nothing to the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. These were common, simple folks. And those are the kind of people that God so often delights to use. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. At this point in Acts, uh, Peter and John are out serving. They're preaching. They're doing their thing. And they are called in to question by uh, the, the Pharisees. It might even be the Sadducees at this point. And uh, one thing that they realize is these men had been with Jesus. They were not educated. They were untrained. Um, I think I had told you guys this once before. Um, the word uneducated there is idiotes. 
in the Greek. I mean, you know, they were by some standards just idiots. These were common men. How could they be doing what they're doing? How can they stand up against the religious establishment the way that they do and do it so well and do it so boldly? It's because they had been with Jesus and God was glorified. It's not because they were eloquent. It's not because they were articulate. It's not because they were well trained. It's not because they had great credibility. It was none of that. It was the power of God and God received the glory. It was obvious that it was Jesus' doing and that is the case in the church. Is it not so many of us? I mean, this, that is the way it ought to be. That's the way that it is. I see that in and of myself that God would, would use me. Uh, it, to me, just proves in my mind that this is true and this is how God operates back then and even today. And lastly, what do we see with the disciples? Commitment. And, and I admire this. These guys really believe this stuff. They say that self-preservation is the number one human instinct. And for them to die horrific deaths like this by themselves, scattered all around the world, tells me they went to their grave believing this. They knew that it was the truth. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to His disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And they, they were obedient to this. They did desire to follow Jesus. And they were willing to take up their cross and follow Him. And what does that even mean to take up one's cross? I suppose that if I could take anything away from these guys, this would be the thing that I, I desire most, is this level of commitment. The cross is not a good luck symbol. It wasn't what I think uh, it has become in, in so many places today. They knew what the cross was. I mean, they probably saw people crucified somewhat regularly, especially in Rome. It was a horrific thing. It was a symbol of death. A person was nailed to the cross and they didn't come off until they were dead. And it was said, I've, I've heard it said, there's one thing you knew about a man carrying a cross out of the town, and that was he's not coming back. And that's what it meant to take up a cross. Jesus said, if you want to be My disciple, if you want to follow Me, you have to die to yourself. It's not, you don't have dreams anymore. You don't have plans. You don't have ambitions. You don't have any of that. My will for your life. Okay, so they had to be willing. And these guys, even in the most literal sense, were called to follow Jesus even to the death. And then it says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. They were willing to let go. They were willing not to cling to their life or to try to save it, but to give it away for the Gospel. And Jesus said, you do that, you'll find life. You'll have life. Um, Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. You can't keep this life. Try as you may. Cling to it all you want. You can't. If you're willing to give it away for God and for His purposes, you'll find life. You'll find true life. And that was Jesus' promise to the disciples. They gave their life. They went all the way to the end. They didn't stop short. They were faithful. They were committed. And uh, you know, I desire that to be true of myself. I desire that to be true of you guys. I think through this stuff regularly. You know, is this true of me? Am I? 
Are there things in my life that need to go? Are there areas where I can step it up? Am I as committed as I, I want to be? Am I as committed as I say I am? Are there ways in which I can go deeper? Are there ways in which I can be more radical? Are there ways in which I can be more obedient? Are there ways in which I can demonstrate Christ in a greater way? And the answer is yes. And with all my heart, I desire that for myself and for you guys. And I think I see the example that the disciples set and I think how can I just live uh, a life of comfort, the comfortable Christian life, no sacrifice, no commitment, no struggle, no battle, uh, no service. How can I do that? You know, when I consider what my Lord has done and what the example that the disciples, the apostles have set, and it didn't stop with them. This has continued on. It's happening today. We have brothers and sisters in the Middle East being crucified for their belief in Christ, their unwillingness to waver from that. So if anything, I would want to take that away from this as I consider our brothers, the, the, the apostles. So with that, let's close. We're going to do one song. Laura, if you want to come on up. We're going to open up the communion table. We're just going to do one song. So while the music is playing, you come on up. You get the elements. Uh, as soon as the song is over, I'll come up and we'll take together. Um, but let this be a time of reflection, a time of meditation, a time of confession. Um, cry out to the Lord. And this represents His body which was broken for us and His blood which was poured out on our behalf for the believer. Every time we do this, we're to do this in remembrance of Him and remembrance of Christ. It's a time of celebration. It's a sacred time of... Um, it's a sacred time of worship. And so let's consider these things that we've just discussed and uh, let this be a time where we draw close to the Lord. Amen.